Hello and welcome to the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast, brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the best way to buy and learn about Bitcoin. I am your host, Alex Danzig. We're excited to announce that we are bringing the Cafe Bitcoin Conversation from Twitter Spaces to you on this show, the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast, Monday through Friday, every week. Join us as we speak to guests like Max Kaiser, Lynn Alden, Thomas Strolight, Corey Clipston, and many others from the Bitcoin space. Also, be sure to hit that subscribe button to make sure you get notifications when we launch a new episode, or you can join us live on Twitter Spaces, Monday through Friday, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific. skateboard around all set <laughs> so uh yeah man um it's been some development since yesterday i guess um the producer price index came in and it came in big drop on the month to month so the producer price index is similar to the consumer price index except it's like a wholesale uh a measurement of prices for businesses and so producers. Um, and that was actually negative on the month. It was the largest monthly drop since uh, 2020 during the spring there. Um, so another sign of, of slowing inflation. And um, I don't know if anyone had thoughts on that, but I, I think it's kind of interesting because um what I've looked at is is like kind of what it consists of, and a lot of this drop is attributed to gasoline. So even in the report, they said that eighty percent of this decline in producer price index comes from the drop in gasoline prices. So we're just seeing a lot of um, deflation across energy, across oil, and that showed up in the PPI. So you see that in shipping costs too. Shipping costs have really dropped off a cliff. And it's really because fuel's a lot cheaper than it was a couple months ago. So these businesses are getting some much needed relief um, because these, these high gasoline prices uh, basically cut into their profit margins across the board, all their processes, all their transportation, um, all their shipping. And so I think it's a, it's a good development. Um, another thing I think about with the PPI and um, – I've been looking at this for a couple of years, actually, is the, is the difference between PPI and CPI. And so you can think of that as a business's ability to pass on the, their, their rising costs onto consumers. And so businesses want to do that. Um, if they can't do that well, uh, it means they got to eat all those costs and it cuts into their corporate profit margins, which can lead to uh, insolvencies and bankruptcies. So they need to be able to pass on the cost to consumers. And if you look at the difference between PPI and CPI, uh, it's been a large, large difference really for the last 18 months or so. And um, right now the difference is still 1.3%. And so you can think of that as businesses are having a hard time uh, pushing these input costs on to consumers. And so it's going to continue to eat into their corporate profit margins. And so 
it's a it's a problem. The last time there was a this large of a difference between PPI and CPI was nineteen seventy four, which was the worst stagflation in our economic history. So um, it's an important thing to know. Is just you would think that the PPI and CPI, if they're measures of price increases throughout the economy, although they're measured slightly differently, they should be a lot closer to each other because businesses should have the ability to pass on costs to consumers because they need to be able to do that or they risk bankruptcy. So I think that's just a little tidbit that I want to share. Um, a little bit of those nuances. So anyway, the other, uh, the other big news that I saw was, um, again, the CPI. Everyone was all happy about the CPI. You know, Biden's basically saying that we have 0% inflation now <laughs> um, because the month of July was technically 0%. Uh, but year over year is still at multi-decade highs. Um, but food prices soared in July the largest increase since 1979. They climbed almost 11% um, over the month. And so as much as people like to celebrate at one month of declining CPI, you know, people going to the grocery store and trying to buy food aren't really buying this this data and they're really still hurting. So um, again, digging into the nuances of these data, I think it's important not to just take these headline numbers um, at face value and just assume that everything's great. And you have to look into uh, how these numbers are derived and the methodologies that calculate them and some of the nuances that actually make up the numbers. Uh, so people are still struggling with high food prices. So hopefully those come down soon. I'm hoping that gasoline prices that are the drop in the last couple of months um, start to reduce some of the shipping costs of these food distribution companies and they can uh, lower their prices for consumers on their end products. So that's kind of how this all works. It's all kind of connected. Um, you know how people say that like CPI could be manipulated and things. Do you think PPI is also manipulated or do you find that more of like an honest and accurate chart because it's more, not as well known to the consumer? Um, well, the big difference between PPI and CPI is the owner's equivalent rent is included in the CPI. And that is actually the largest weighting of the CPI. And so that's the measure of shelter, the shelter component of the CPI. That's not included in PPI. And I think that's a huge part of the, you know, you could say manipulation, but I, I just think like inaccurate um, measurement of CPI because the owner's equivalent rent, like for example, the owner's equivalent rent was measured at 5.8% year over year. And that's the, that's in the CPI, that's the measure of general house prices and rent prices. All right. So just think about that. Like the CPI thinks that housing and your rent has only gone up 5.8% over the last year. Um, but if you look at say rent.com, they think the average uh, rent increases for a one bedroom apartment and a two bedroom apartment across the nation is 25% year over year. So huge uh, discrepancy between the two numbers. And if you look at the Case-Shiller Price Index, which is a general index of national home prices, uh, that's up 19.7% year over year. And so there's a huge discrepancy between the shelter component of the CPI, which makes up 30% of the weighting, 
So it, it has a lot of weight uh, to the overall headline number of CPI, and it wildly misunder, uh, understates the, the real estate uh, prices that have been rising dramatically over the last year. And so that's where I think the PPI is a lot better than the CPI. So the, the PPI uh, doesn't have that, and um, it, I, I think it's a little bit more accurate. And that's probably why it's a lot higher, right? <laughs> that's why it's 1.3% higher than the CPI. Um, and it's a little bit more uh, robust in terms of how many businesses it surveys. Uh, I can't remember the exact number, but it, it, it surveys a lot of businesses. I think 70% or something of, of the, um, the businesses across the nation or something like that. Or the, I can't remember the exact term. But yeah, so the, anyway, that's, that's kind of my thoughts on PPI versus CPI. I think it's a little bit more accurate. Good morning, Peter. What's up, man? Technical difficulties. But uh, other than that, not a whole lot. I'm trying to trying to get my Apple TV to uh, to play CNBC. It doesn't want to do it. So maybe, I don't know, maybe that's a sign. Maybe I should quit watching it. You're watching CNBC, man? <laughs> I, I just always have... Come on, man. I've had it on in the background since, God, since the... When did it start in the '90s? I mean, I've just had this thing on forever. So yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. I admit it. I got it on. It's just like your background noise. Just wake up in the morning, throw it on. I get that. No, I don't even have the sound on. I just, I just have it <laughs> on the screen. I started turning the sound off about about ten years ago. Well, uh, I think we can probably uh, start the show. If anybody wants to come up, you can just raise your hand. Um, uh, this is Cafe Bitcoin. So this is the place for morning Bitcoin news. This is the preferred hangout of Bitcoiners in the morning where we get together and we just talk about updates in the market and what's going on in Bitcoin. Uh, we do a recording of this. It's a podcast. So if you, you can't make this show in the morning, you got to go to work or something. Uh, check it out later on Fountain, Spotify, Apple, wherever you like to listen to podcasts, you can find it. So just give a search, Cafe Bitcoin. Uh, this is brought to you by Swan Bitcoin. All right. So Swan Bitcoin is an international uh, Bitcoin brokerage firm and financial services company. Uh, we serve businesses, high net worth individuals, and international clients. Uh, we do all kinds of products uh, like SWAT IRAs, uh, tax loss harvesting. Um, we're about to put out an app here in a little bit. And we're also throwing a conference in November 10th and 11th. Uh, it's the Pacific Bitcoin Conference. And so it's going to be a great time, man. It's out in LA. Uh, warm weather in November. It's going to be a party with a lot of your favorite Bitcoiners. Um, it's just going to be a good time. I'm, I'm excited. It's, it's going to be sports celebrations. There's going to be events all week. If you go to PacPacificBitcoin.com and use promo code CAFE, uh, you can get 20% off your tickets. So head there. Um, and I don't know what else you're doing in November, but uh, hanging out with Bitcoiners in LA seems like a good time. So I highly recommend it. Um, and yeah, so um, one of the other big news was this, you know, BlackRock over their last couple of days, their announcement that they're teaming up with Coinbase Prime to offer uh, exposure to Bitcoin, the spot Bitcoin, uh, to their institutional clients. Um, I don't know if anyone has some initial thoughts there, but uh, 
uh, it's kind of big. I think it's big news. It's a little bit of a mixed mixed bag for me, but um, I think it's some some really big news for Bitcoin's overall adoption. Any any thoughts on that? I agree. Yeah, they I want agree. your Bitcoin. Go ahead. Yeah, those, those are the conflicting views right there. So let's go. Let's go. And let's go, start with you, man. Yeah, they want your Bitcoin. Like I said the other day, Bitcoin is be your own bank, not use your use bank uh, your Bitcoin at your bank. You know, they can they can make money easily. And you know, this paper money. I saw someone's tweet today, and I agreed with it. It's like you have to be very careful trading away your precious Bitcoin for dollars, especially right now. And I know there's like some boomers and some scared people that'll, you know, they're waiting for something like this, but that's the wrong application. Totally wrong understanding. It's not the boomers and the people that are waiting for this that um, make this good news. It's because those people, if they're waiting for this because they're scared, well, then, you know, they're going to get wrecked anyways. The reality is, is that there's a huge number of people who have no idea what Bitcoin is, what it does. They're not they're never going to take the time or they're not going to take the time to understand it um, until something happens. And so let's say BlackRock offers this. Let's say people put some people put one percent of this in their portfolio and they forget about it. You know, it's just an allocation. They forget about it. But in three years, suddenly that 1% has turned into 40% of their portfolio or 20% of their portfolio. There's going to be a whole bunch of people at that point who are going to notice number go up, just like so many people have in um, the Bitcoin space. And that is going to be the point at which they enter into the rabbit hole because they are going to be interested. And the more people that get interested, the better. I mean, people are going to get wrecked on the way no matter what. So I, I also have mixed feelings about it, but I think it is a net positive versus uh, a net negative. Yeah, I mean, that's the same for all of us. I mean, you know, you hold Bitcoin long enough and you keep stacking at some point, your stack becomes worth more than everything that you have that everything that you own, all your positions, if you keep stacking and it keeps growing. I mean, you you know, you can't stop these banks. I mean, yeah, it's a good sign that, okay, I mean, if BlackRock's getting involved, getting their money in it, then it's like, it adds one more layer of, you know, not stability, but like strength or whatever you want to call it to Bitcoin proposition. I just, I'm sitting here on the sidelines watching this thing unfold. And I mean, again, there's nothing we can do about it. Like Bitcoin's for everybody. They're all going to come in and, you know, you can't stop it. But I would just be very hesitant about looking at these, any kind of programs from a bank about Bitcoin. I mean, we saw what they did with gold. True, and I get that. I mean, it's, there's a couple, I, you know, what they have right now is basically exposure to like cash settled futures. And so seems better than that, that they at least have direct exposure to like some kind of Bitcoin, some kind of like IOU spot Bitcoin though, where there's actually like spot Bitcoin being bought at least and held in a trust. And it's hard, it's hard because like these are huge institutional clients. And so they kind of have different needs. Um, but you're right, man. It's not, it's not holding your own keys, um, but there's nothing we could do about it. It's exactly like you said. And there's all these developments that have been occurring in the last couple of years. I mean, what comes to mind is, is NIDIG's work, uh, 
um, partnering with a lot of these uh, banking technology companies like Fiserv uh, to provide banking solutions and Bitcoin banking solutions. And so I think this is coming no matter what. Um, I would love it if they would just like offer the ability to withdraw uh, real Bitcoin. But I, I really highly doubt that, that that's going to be the case with this BlackRock news. But it's hard to it's hard. There's, so, there's Sam. A, yeah. Sam, do yeah, you think that do you think that in in five years that they're still not going to offer um, the ability to withdraw and self custody? I, I mean, at some point, even the even the institutions are going to have a much better understanding of of what this asset is. You know, the fact that it's money, the fact that it's outside of the system, and somebody in that organization is going to, or many people in that organization may be pushing to, um, uh, to get on the, the Bitcoin ethos uh, as well as, uh, as providing uh, access to their clients to Bitcoin. I, man, it seems like against their business model to allow that to happen, to allow their clients to withdraw funds. Uh, you know, it's like if everyone just immediately withdrew all their Bitcoin at once, it would be like a, the fastest bank run for them ever. If there's like if that was a meaningful amount of money on their on their balance sheet, um, but at the same time, I think you're right. I think there's going to be this like free market uh, competition uh, to adhere to the principles of their clients, and there's going to be some uh, commercial banks that do allow it, and and customers will choose to to bank with them because they do offer the ability to withdraw Bitcoin. Now, I think it's a totally different game when it comes to BlackRock. I think. I think BlackRock's dealing with very, very large asset managers and institutional clients. Um, and I highly, highly doubt that they're going to offer something like that. Obviously, it could be wrong. Um, but BlackRock, you know, it, it can't be understated how, how big they are. Uh, they're the largest asset manager, you know, $10 trillion. Everyone's heard that number now. But um, it, like I did, this happened years ago, uh, you know, People would have been like, I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe BlackRock's in, you know. But I think now, I think now when it happened, A, it's in a bear market, so it's not really gonna move price or anything like that. But also I, I feel like there's been more education around self-custody and, and there's a lot of more like weariness around, okay, BlackRock's in it, but is this actually good for Bitcoin? Like what Ant said with the gold and IOUs, you know, it could could it could it change like Bitcoin's scarcity profile in some way? Like, do you guys think that it could actually so, affect anything so I, like that? I, I, I've got a question. So currently, since, you know, I've doxed myself and I've got CNBC on the screen, currently I can have a, a, a small basket, Walmart and, and uh, Coke. And if I have, if I have $10 million dollars, and I invest all of that into Walmart and Coke in the TradFi system. I'm a trad, you know, if I was a TradFi guy and I was doing this, I could live off the dividends effectively. So in the future, if we think that Walmart and Coke are still going to be around in the future um, during, say, Bitcoin hybridization, I mean, people are still going to drink Coke. Coke is proof of work. They're, they're providing a product they're, they're, uh, to, to, to people who want to drink something like that. Are they going to be still providing dividends? And are those dividends going to be in sats?
Yeah. Probably going to be in paper stats. Yeah, paper stats. Yeah, probably right in. Wow, you think it's going to be paper stats at that point during Bitcoin hybridization? You don't oh, think I've it's heard, going? To... Oh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. How far out we think it here? Because well, I'm just, I'm just, I'm what I'm trying to do is, is I'm trying to, I'm trying to think about, you know, how this world looks now and and how I see it. I'm a boomer, and how I see it, and how I see things, and you know how the world's going to look. The financial world's going to look in the future because these companies, there's still going to be companies around. They're going to be on the on the Bitcoin standard. And people are going to demand, if if they're doing something like a dividend, people are going to demand sats. And I would guess that those sats would be streaming instead of a, a quarterly dividend. I would imagine they would be streaming daily or hourly or however that's going to work in the future. But yeah, again, so I think the answer to your question is yes, but not right now. Uh, I shared a chart from uh, Trace Mayer. It's called the liquidity pyramid. And, you know, liquidity, his theory is that liquidity moves down the, this pyramid to more, to safer, more liquid assets. And, you know, he was going to, he didn't, he didn't get around to adding Bitcoin to the bottom of the, uh, the chart, which is, he has gold and silver, but he, He's a big Bitcoin guy now, and he thinks Bitcoin belongs there with gold and silver. And once we get to that point where, you know, where you get to the point of hyperinflation in this country, where the global reserve asset, the U.S. dollar, starts to hyperinflate, and people lose confidence in it, and it becomes like currencies in Argentina or Venezuela or Lebanon. And then at that point, yes, you'll you get dividends and sats, you'll be able to go to Walmart, there'll be a price for milk in dollars, then next to, next to that, there'll be a price in sats. Uh, that's a hyper-Bitcoinized world in my view. I think we'll get to that point. But it takes time. I mean, we have to get to hyperinflation first. I mean, and that's after after we get through, you know, like bonds, people, you know, investors lose confidence in bonds. So he has like shadow derivatives first, which is like the trashiest investment, and then uh, stocks, uh, bonds, and then um, then you know gold and silver. So like I think we're at the point where like you know we're we're past the shadow derivatives and that sort of thing. Like we're we're in like the stocks point, but. You know, it just it all depends how fast uh, the dollar you know goes through hyperinflation. You know, I just I feel like that this the government data is showing that inflation is starting to slow down, and I think that's due to like the commodities are you know because oil and other commodities are starting to like you know uh, show signs of uh, cooling off. But we don't really know what's going on with the actual like you know like dollars in the system and. Uh, what uh, they call the euro dollar system too, which is just like shadow dollars around the world. You know, we don't like nobody knows how much euro dollars there are, which is dollars offshore in uh, other parts of the world where you know banks just you know have these like uh, dollar denominated assets, which is lend out in credit, and you know that just it just keeps creating more dollars in the system outside the United States. So, you know, it just, it remains to be seen, you know, how long it takes for us to get to hyperinflation. But yeah, I, I feel like 
that's when the transition will happen. You know, we'll get to hyperinflation and then slowly people will start losing confidence in it and they'll demand, you know, something like, uh, you know, Bitcoin for, for payment. And then it will be then then they'll really become real. So so do you think that this that that this BlackRock adoption in whatever form that it is, uh, is part of this natural progression towards Bitcoin hybridization? Yeah, yes. Yes. Slowly and surely. The only thing with the BlackRock thing is, you know, a lot of those uh, big investors, big pockets, you know, they're not really they're smart, but they're not like Bitcoiners like us. They're not, you know, like, <laughs> like Bitcoin fanatics, you know, like they, I, I just, I worry that they're trying to get into crypto, you know, and, and yeah, yes, they are buying Bitcoin, but you know, they're also buying Ethereum. That's the thing that bothers me about it. You know, like they have big pockets and, you know, they they think diversification is key. You know, they want to like, they're not going to just only go buy Bitcoin. They're going to buy Ethereum and other stuff too, you know, which is okay. Uh, you know, but that's understandable. You know, I mean, until like you're properly orange filled, you know, you're not going to understand uh, why there can only be one. Um, but and, that's and okay. That was, and that was part of what I was talking about was that eventually people in these organizations are going to take notice of what's going on. They're going to become orange pilled. They're going to go down the rabbit hole and they're going to yeah. go down that rabbit hole because of the exposure that they're, that they're encountering and the, the exponential growth that's going to happen with that exposure. Yes. Yes, exactly. I mean, hey. it's a good entryway. Definitely. I mean, it's a good news. Yeah. So I'm sorry to interrupt everyone. I just have a question for like everyone. Um, the Financial Times reported a few days ago that the reason BlackRock made this move is that institutional clients are demanding this, right? They're demanding help with uh, managing Bitcoin. So firstly, does anyone have any insight or does anyone know who these in- institutional clients are where they're located, and if perhaps this is part of managing geopolitical risk? So when you look at it, it really comes down to fidelity and, you know, these other um, big investment firms and what they offer to their clients. And so really, this is just capitulation. This is institutional investors going to BlackRock and saying, look, we're going to leave the firm. We know you're the biggest, we know you're the best, but we're going to leave the firm because we can go to others that are offering exposure to Bitcoin. We want exposure to Bitcoin. And so if Black, BlackRock doesn't, um, they just risk you know, runoff and losing big clients to some of these other investment firms that offer it. So this is just another domino falling, really. Okay, so you think a lot of these clients are based in the U.S., or could they be based in the Middle East or elsewhere? Like, do you think it's only about at this point, and just piggybacking off what was mentioned earlier, the fact that a lot of these people don't necessarily know what Bitcoin is, how to manage it. If they did, they would figure it out themselves, so to speak. But do you think that it's only about um, hyperinflationary fears, or could it be something else as well? I guess my opinion is I think that, you know, you heard in 2020, a lot of financial advisors started saying to their clients, hey, you should have one to five percent of your 
uh, assets in Bitcoin. And if, you know, BlackRock isn't offering it, then how can someone get one to 5%? So I don't think it's as, um, how do I want to say it? It's not as big of a deal as we think, even though BlackRock, you know, has the most assets on hand uh, that they manage. I don't think that, you know, I think people are just looking to get exposure. Yeah. And also, you know, these people are smart. They know, you know, Bitcoin has a limited supply and that, uh, you know, it, it, it has a lot of upside, asymmetric upside, as they say. And, uh, you know, part of it is FOMO too, you know, like, like, you know, they, they don't want to miss out on the next leg up. And, uh, there's other, pl- you know, like I live in, uh, Northern Virginia, uh, a place called Fairfax County. And recently, uh, the retirement system, the public retirement system here for teachers and police officers, government workers, invested $70 million in a crypto fund, $70 million <laughs> retirement money. Okay. So, I mean, they know the potential of the, you know, the, what they call blockchain technology. You know, and that's how these people are thinking about it. You know, they, they think blockchain technology is the new thing and they don't want to miss out. Um, they know there's something there. You know, they might not be like, like I said, orange pilled, uh, you know, Bitcoiners like us, but they know there's something there and they don't want to miss out. Yeah, this is like, um, this is definitely global, like BlackRock's ginormous. Um, so somewhere that they manage about 7% of the world's financial assets. And so really this is built through BlackRock's Aladdin uh, software program. So it's basically like a electronic portfolio management software that all of these very large institutions use. By institutions, we're talking about corporate pensions, family offices, endowments, sovereign wealth funds, banks. Like these are the kind of institutions that we're talking about. Um, so uh, why they're why they want exposure is because they're hearing from all of their clients, all of the tens of thousands of investment portfolios that they manage for their clients. They're getting demand, and they're saying we want access to Bitcoin and probably crypto more broadly. If I'm being honest, and so this is all kind of like a demand uh, response. And and BlackRock, like like what uh, Peter was saying. They're just responding to that demand as well. They don't want to lose these very, very large clients, these institutional clients that they have. So they're they're offering exposure, and they could want exposure to Bitcoin for all different kinds of reasons. Uh, but it, it's obviously a trend in the right direction from where BlackRock was a few years ago when they were calling Bitcoin, you know, a money laundering scheme and all these other kind of things. So that's why it's it's basically a sign of capitulation. And we always hear about institutions on the sideline. Well. They need large, um, you know, infrastructure, which is the Aladdin software program that they use BlackRock. They need that to allow them to gain access, uh, exposure to Bitcoin. And that this is kind of what that is. So I hope that kind of clears things up a little bit. I mean, I think it's true that they're, you know, that their clients are, are demanding Bitcoin, I'm sure to an extent. I just, I just think that it's also true that, you know, we, we can know that the, or assume, I guess, that that the bank's intentions for getting into Bitcoin are not going to be as altruistic as like all of ours and, you know, the things that we've been talking about. 
like I seriously doubt that BlackRock and Fidelity and these companies are, are you know, these institutions are looking at Bitcoin and being like, oh, this is going to free humanity from, you know, the chains that we've thrown on to everybody body and and wow this could free everybody like i i don't i don't see that these banks are, are making that stand it's more like they want to they see that it's becoming a problem and now it's like their same legacy bullshit to this to to this pristine asset and it's it's not going to work long term like we all know that but in the beginning it's like there there is that like friction point during it's not just going to be like boom oh hyper bitcoinization and now it's here there's like a big battle coming and we don't know how that's going to look and stuff like this i mean yeah it's exciting for adoption and you're right like in 2017 and back then like if we would have seen blackrock coming in everybody would have been all over that but now with like you're you're in it a little bit longer and stuff the stuff that we've been talking about on these spaces and and all of that it's like I just, I'm not excited about it. I'm, I'm more worried about it than anything. I just, not worried, that's not the right word, but there is something we can do. It's like, we just need to get stacked harder and harder. I see stories that BlackRock is getting involved and I'm going, I don't have enough Bitcoin. My wife doesn't have enough Bitcoin. Like we, my friends and family don't have enough Bitcoin. Like we need to hurry. The You're in the matrix, Ant. You know, ultimately, you know, if we're going to get to these, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of, you know, price points, if you believe in the stock to flow model or other models, you know, that, you know, call for 100K Bitcoin, million dollar Bitcoin, you know, ultimately, you're going to have to have the black rocks of the world uh, in, in order for us to get to those uh, price points, you know, but yeah, I mean, to Anne's point, yeah, I I also have other worries. Is like, you know, what if these people start, um, you know, rehypothecating the Bitcoin? Like, like say they they buy, you know, hundred thousand, two hundred thousand Bitcoin for their client's fund. Like, who's going to hold the private key, you know, to that Bitcoin? And what if the clients start demanding like physical? you know, physical possession. Um, and uh, how are they going to manage that? Or are they they're not going to allow it? Are they, what if they, you know, hand out more paper Bitcoin than there's actual Bitcoin in their wallets, kind of like what they do with gold right now, you know? So there's... I don't there's think you... I think there's going to be such tough regulation that rehypothecation won't be possible. So like an investment house has to you know, custody the assets and can't just change what custody means, like what the definition of custody means, like Voyager did or what Celsius did. Um, so I think those are prime examples of, you know, what happened with those two big companies uh, who tried to, per their terms of use or terms of service, redefine what custody means and uh, that's not going to go in these traditional markets. It's, the regulators won't allow it. So I think what what you're going to see is a lot of um, slow um, slow adoption with the investment firms and the banks because the regulators are going to dictate exactly what they can do and what they can't do. So right now the rules are pretty loose, um, and they're telling people to hold off 
I work in the banking space and I, I work directly with regulators. And um, a lot of it is um, very, um, how, how would I say it? It's, it's wait and hold on until we tell you what you can do. Um, and so the, I, I think that what you'll see is rehypothecation will be completely off the table as it relates to traditional finance. Will other companies come in and try to offer things in the future, like what, um, you know, BitConnect or Celsius or Voyager or any of these others? Um, will they, there be non-bank financial institutions that try to do this? Maybe. But I think when you look at, you know, investment firms and banks um, because of the regulations, they're, they're not going to be able to, to do things like fractional reserve banking uh, with Bitcoin. So in the, in the past, I mean, you know, I've only been in Bitcoin since basically late 2020, early 2021. But as I look back in the past, there has always been news of some institution or some, something, some entity moving into the space that has been, you know, received at the time, either negatively or positively, however it is. And then it just plays out like it plays out. I mean, you know, Coinbase, I think, is, a, is an excellent example. I'm sure that everybody was, was happy when, when Coinbase came in. Um, well, not everybody, but many people were happy when Coinbase came in. Um, the reality is, is it turned into a, a raging dumpster fire. Uh, and that doesn't mean that 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 another uh, entity that enters into the into the space is going to do the the same thing necessarily. Um, and it also doesn't mean that that entity that moves in doesn't see the light at some point. I guess I guess I'm just a, a glass half full kind of guy, and I like to think that that the good in people um, generally is what bubbles to the top, and even. Even even evil bankers can uh, can can change their tune um, and can uh, walk away from from some of the some of the greed and the the fiat mentality that they that they currently um, espouse to. Yeah, I hear that. I'm I'm an online gamer, man. If 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 there's an edge people can have over the other people in a closed world like like, like the Earth, uh, they're gonna go for it. And your point, I mean, about people coming in and, and, the, and the companies, I mean, you're totally right. You know, you look at Robinhood as an example. Like when Robinhood announced that they were going to do Bitcoin, it was massive. And like everybody was like giddy and putting those little laughing emojis and like, you know, the dancing babies and all that stuff. And but then it turned out, whoops, they don't let you take it off the platform. You can't take it off of there. You can't send it to a private to to uh, uh, to your own cold storage. Like it has to stay on the Robinhood platform. And then you're right. Over time, things shake out. I mean, in, in their case, I don't know. I'm not a Robinhood customer, but I guess I saw that they either did already or they're going to reverse that decision and allow you to like pull the Bitcoin off. But there was a long time where that was. the wiser like they thought they had bitcoin i had friends telling me that they were buying bitcoin on robin hood but i already knew that i was like bro it's not bitcoin like you don't have bitcoin try again you've been scammed you've been you've been tricked you know and now it's like okay robin hood i don't know the financial pictures i don't know how long you can run something like that 
before finally you do have to capitulate and go, sir, they don't want our paper Bitcoin. We're going to lose them, you know, whatever. I don't know how all that works, but it feels like BlackRock could run it a little longer than Robinhood. And again, remember, I may not even know what the hell I'm talking about. These are just like feelings that I have based on this long-term fight that we have that I've had with these with these institutions basically my whole life. And now we have a big one coming still. And I just think, just be careful, guys. Just stack. That's the best thing. Stack, stack, stack. Yeah, and, uh, it reminds me of PayPal, too. Everyone's jumping about PayPal. But also PayPal, uh, in June, they started to allow withdrawals, too. So there's kind of these pivots. Uh, we're going to go to Surfer Jim and then and Foss. Uh, Surfer Jim, do you got something to say? Uh, yeah, hey, guys. Thank you very much. Uh, interesting discussion, as always. Uh, I'm not uh, some big macro investor kind of guy that pays attention to all these things but uh, i try to i try to pay attention to the extent that i i get what's being talked about you know blackrock getting into bitcoin obviously a big deal but um i'm constantly listening to like people say things and i even just did it we talk about this thing called blackrock as if it can decide for itself it can't it's an entity run by human beings and uh bitcoin is adopted by one person at a time whether they run a country or they run their own family, they have to make a decision. What is this and do I care and do I need it? And I just wanted to do a, a quick sort of side story uh, that, that ties into this. So I, I hosted the first Long Island Bitcoin meetup last night, which was quite nice. And uh, about 15 people showed up. Um, they all told me that was not bad for the first one. But the most interesting thing was the waitress that served us. I, I have not yet met a person who never heard of Bitcoin until last night. This woman is in her mid to late 30s and had never even heard the word Bitcoin. And then she's looking at this crowd of people and going, you guys are all so nice. What's going on here? I said, it's this thing called Bitcoin. Do you know that? She's like, what is that? I never heard of it. I was shocked. So uh, long story short, by the end of the day, she went home with a blue wallet on her phone with oh, I don't know, 80 or 90,000 sats. And when I sent her the first couple sats, her jaw dropped to the floor. She went, what the fuck? She couldn't believe it. And I basically said to her by the end of the night, um, she's engaged. Uh, and I said, you and your fiance's world just changed so dramatically. It's going to take you to comprehend. She was blown away. And then at the end of the night, the guests that came, the people that came wanted to tip her and, and people started tipping her lightning tips and she was just freaking out the whole time. So I just love the idea of one person at a time getting it and, and seeing it. And, and the good thing is she, she's never even heard of shit coins. So I got her going in the right direction. We're actually going to meet up. I told her I'd meet with her and her fiance for lunch and I'll, I'll get into it deeper. Oh, and uh, one, one of our, uh, our awesome Bitcoiners that came in, uh, he's in the room. Uh, Sharp on Sats is, uh, is his uh, Twitter name. He came with um, two of uh, the Bitcoin standards. He, he's like, I got extras. I, I just want to give them away. That girl got one of them. She was just blown away. Uh, she's going to go home and read about how money works and just get orange filled about what the heck's going on here. And I just love it. I think it's one of the most awesome things. And I never could have seen it coming, but it was so worth it to have that meetup, even if it was just for only one person. So thanks for letting me tell that little story. Yeah, it's a Bitcoin's adoption. It's a grassroots movement, right? It's one person at a time, and uh, BlackRock is just a organization run by people. Uh, so maybe the orange pill was spread throughout that uh, large 
I would say evil corporation. <laughs> All right, Foss, uh, what do you got to say, man? What do you think about this news? Yeah, uh, well, firstly, uh, Jim, uh, Surfer Jim, uh, that's a cool story. Uh, just wanted to add on that. Sometimes when I go out to a restaurant, my way of uh, orange pilling the wait staff is uh, saying, do you know about Bitcoin? Do you have a Bitcoin wallet? And uh, if they don't, and I'm about, I run about nine out of 10 success rate here. If they don't have a wallet, I say, by the end of the meal, if you download a wallet, I'll tip you twice as much in Bitcoin as I would in fiat. And uh, it's a pretty good way to get people to, uh, to uh, get orange pilled or just actually get uh, adoption. But then the funny thing is when you go back to that restaurant uh, sometime later and you see the same waiter uh, or waitress uh, and, you know, they're talking about how they've been uh, watching the price of Bitcoin and how interesting it is, et cetera, et cetera. So, Jim, uh, just a, a little anecdote there. But coming back to uh, an area that I spent my life in, uh, institutional investing. Um, you guys respectfully, and this is with all the respect I can give. Okay. The difference between BlackRock and Robinhood and BlackRock and Coinbase is like the difference between, I don't know, I hate to say it, but Bitcoin and fiat. Okay. Like Robinhood and Coinbase are fucking has-beens. They're, they're just, they're, they're not important in the global scale of things. BlackRock is the world's largest institutional manager with $10 trillion of assets under administration. Okay, I need you guys to do some math with me here. What if BlackRock takes or gets 10% of their AUM assets under administration to go into Bitcoin? I'm just playing mathematical games. That is a $10 trillion allocation. Excuse me. That is a $1 trillion allocation just from BlackRock. Now, it's not going to happen all at once, but it is going to come out of the bond portfolios because they realize that 60-40, the traditional 60% equities, 40% bond port, uh, balance portfolio is dead as a doorknob, okay? The last quarter and half year has been disastrous. There was no buffering. Bonds went down. And equities went down historic amounts. They need diversification. So like it or not, this money is coming. Now, I understand what Ant is saying and Peter, and this is all true. Stack, be disciplined. Bitcoin price is a rounding error right now, but you can't fight this. This is part of the adoption process, and I'm not defending it. I just, it, I just want people to open your eyes to understand that it is, in my opinion, it is inevitable. Okay. It's part of the growth and adoption process. And then as a side note, if Bitcoin is to attain the valuations that some people think is are possible, including myself, yeah, you need the big money people. That's the way the world works. There's 900 trillion in financial assets globally, 900 trillion. A lot of it is managed by the big boys, not the plebs. I'm, I'm, I hate to say it. It's managed by the big boys and, 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 and ladies. It is not managed by the plebs. Anyway, nice, over to you nice guys. To see you. Nice to see you, Foss. Uh, I, I, I always love hearing from you. I have a question. Um, Arthur Hayes had an article out a couple of weeks ago uh, saying that the Fed could buy Japanese government bonds and uh, – Euro uh, ECB bonds at some point to try to help them uh, bring down their yields. 
Do you think that's a possibility? 100%. I mean, it's part of, of Ben Bernanke basically said that uh, in, uh, you know, uh, over a decade ago. And it is part of the toolkit, the quote unquote Fed's toolkit. Um, what is it though? It's a backdoor quantitative easing. Okay. <laughs> as simple as that. It's backdoor QE. And so I frequently say this QE infinity is the mathematical certainty. And you need assets to protect against that assets that are hard, limited supply, et cetera. You know, the, the outcome, but it, it, you know, BlackRock knows the same math. They know that if they own 40% of their portfolio in bonds, which is a fiat contract, and that fiat contract is programmed to debase, well, they better get an asset that hedges against that. And that's Bitcoin. So, you know, I, I got to run, people. Um, I, 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 I won't be able to talk, which is so good. You don't want to hear any more from me, but I want to listen. Okay, so thanks. Thanks, Foss. Great takes, as always. I want to welcome to this uh, stage Neil and Joe. What's up, guys? I don't know if you wanted to chime in at all, what your thoughts are around um, BlackRock or anything else that you find interesting right now. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me up, Sam. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, Neil. Good morning, Sam. Good morning, Ant, Foss, everyone else. I see Tomer in the audience, Surfer Jim. Um, yeah, no, so this BlackRock news is uh, it's pretty bananas. Like Foss said, it's you know the, the largest institutional asset manager in the world, $10 trillion assets under management. It's pretty, the prospect of even a fraction of a fraction of that money now having the ability to directly go into Bitcoin uh, is pretty bananas. Like we need these on, I've now used bananas twice as an adjective, I'm sorry. Uh, it, you know, it, it's, a, it's an interesting prospect. You know, even if, and I won't say if, BlackRock is obviously this, you know, this shadow banking organization, right? Um, you know, deep rather crony ties within, you know, the, these dark organizations throughout the world. But by the same token, guess what? That $10 trillion, um, you know, is, is more than, uh, more than 20 X Bitcoin's current market cap. And guess what? If they purchase all of the Bitcoin that changes nothing about their ability to change the protocol. Unlike if they bought, you know, all of the outstanding shares of Coca-Cola, you know, They'd be able to 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 vote on the um, you know on the Coca Cola board about the way that the company gets run. They don't have any control over the you know over the consensus mechanism of Bitcoin. If they you know if literally all of you know these client funds were to go into Bitcoin, which of course they won't. Um, but hey, Joe, you know, Joe, yeah, what, yeah. What do you, what do you? Sorry to interrupt, but what do you think the look on Larry Fink's face is going to be when he when someone tells him he can't control this thing and he goes, <laughs> "What the fuck." It's like, what are you talking about? I've got, I've got all this money. I bought all of it. I, what are you talking? What do you mean I can't control it? And then they get rid of the institutional um, option for them to buy Bitcoin. But no, it's uh, it's pretty remarkable. Like obviously, this organization um, is one that Bitcoiners, including myself, have have historically ragged on, and I personally will continue to do so because these guys are, you know, to to put it bluntly, major stacks of shit. But you know that 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 liquidity is now open to Bitcoin. Uh, you know, if uh, chances are a, a decent fraction of it will enter Bitcoin, um, and and in doing so, you know, it's absorbing some of this lost liquidity in the system without changing the Bitcoin protocol rules whatsoever, right? So the people in this call who own Bitcoin benefit greatly in terms of adoption, um, in terms of the proliferation around the world. Um, you know, this is a step in the right direction. Granted, you know, this institution isn't even remotely reputable. I'm not a fan of them whatsoever, but you know. 
you, we've sort of got to play the hand that we're being dealt, I guess. Yeah, man, those are great points, and I agree. I like the Coca-Cola reference. It's like if you buy a share, you can change the recipe or some shit. <laughs> you can't change the recipe of Bitcoin. Um, Paul, you had your hand up. Did you have a response there? Yeah, I actually, and I jumped in here a little bit late, so please excuse me if you guys already addressed this. But my my only concern with BlackRock is that they are the ESG behemoth in the in on Wall Street, and that they might try and pursue some sort of, uh, you know, separation between green Bitcoin and, uh, for lack of better but better words, uh, we'll just say traditionally. Traditional energy uh, produced Bitcoin, uh, um, and I'd hate to see that sort of uh, those fungibility issues start to exist, and, and that separation start to exist. And hey, Paul, uh, that that's really it. Paul, don't you think that that's that's akin to the or analogous to uh, the hundred dollar bills that are coated with cocaine? I mean, they they can't separate mm-hmm. out that shit. Uh, yeah, I guess the only thing way is. I see them separating that is if they if they say, "Hey, we're all in this particular fund. We're only buying Bitcoin provided by green energy miners or renewable energy miners." Right? That's the only way I could see them making that separation, and it would be an artificial separation. And you know, I don't think anybody's ever going to permit like coding or color coding coins on the uh, in the in the blockchain, but. Uh, I could see them pushing for that kind of separation just to as a as a marketing ploy more than anything. But which almost would, all but almost all miners are are mining are mining in a green way because they're they're going after um they're going after stranded energy. I mean it's mm-hmm. it's it's kind of a self a self uh, defeating prophecy to, You're to right. that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I I totally agree with you there. I think in the long run it's all irrelevant. And that's my, like I said, my only concern is that they try and pull that kind of shenanigan. So I want to, I want to say anecdotally that, um, and uh, you guys are probably going to yell at me, but whatever. Uh, so anecdotally, I want to say that um, I've recently gotten involved with with Stack Chain, and it has it has created FOMO uh, in me, and I have made purchases uh, of Bitcoin that I hadn't intended on making. Um, and that is a good thing because uh, I'm a hodler and anytime that I can stack and anything that gets me to stack is a good thing. And so where I want to bring this back to BlackRock is even though we know that BlackRock is um, an entity that at least currently is not looking out, it's looking out for its own best interest. It's not really looking out for its client's best interest. I think that is something that is just ancillary to its own best interest. But, you know, when people start to see, I think to, to Joe's point, when people start to see that entities like BlackRock are entering this market, it creates FOMO. And there is a whole bunch of people, and also to Surfer Jim's point about this woman who'd never heard of Bitcoin, because of this news, there's going to be a whole bunch of people, uh, a whole bunch of new plebs who become interested in Bitcoin because of BlackRock has has entered into this. Are all of them going to uh, get into self custody, become Bitcoin maxis, and understand, um, you know, the, the 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 properties of Bitcoin and 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 how why Bitcoin is such a pristine asset, why it needs to be held? Probably not. But some of them are, and some of them turns into some more and some more and some more. So you know, 
I think we can look at this thing in, in any way that we want, but the reality is, is that, you know, it is further adoption and, um, you know, there's nothing they can do to Bitcoin. Bitcoin is going to do what Bitcoin's going to do and the adoption is going to happen how it's going to happen. And people are going to stack. For Peter, I, I agree with you. I agree with you, Peter, on everything you said, except for that BlackRock's not looking out for their customers' best interests. The, the reason I'll, I'll push against that is because they waited until now, right? They could have done it at the height of the market when, you know, Bitcoin was at 60, 60, 69,000, something like that. But I think that this was um, calculated. I think that they waited for this to turn. They made a decision and they probably been sitting on it for a while because they don't want their clients to get in, you know, at the height of the market. They want their clients to be able to allocate funds when it's, you know, pretty much bottom, not to say that there is a bottom yet, but um, when it's pretty much bottom. So I think if you don't look out for your clients, you probably lose them. And so uh, everything else you said was perfect on point. Um, there is going to be more and more um, people adopting Bitcoin or at least allocating to Bitcoin because BlackRock has opened the floodgates to their clients. Hey guys, I just want to quickly address the ESG point because I think it is important. Um, in the press release that came out yesterday, uh, and I'll just read this one sentence, BlackRock is encouraged that organizations such as RMI and Energy Web are developing programs to bring greater transparency to sustainable energy usage in Bitcoin mining and will follow progress around these initiatives. And that's the end of the sentence. So they just indicated a pivot and are waving a bit of a Bitcoin is okay green flag to the entire ESG focused investment sector. Thanks. I'll step down. Thanks for, uh, thanks for sharing that, man. That's, that's an interesting little tidbit there. Um, yeah, so, you know, I, I just like a few thoughts for me from a lot of what was just said there. Um, I think one concern here that I have is that this is a very, very large um, centralized institution that has a lot of funds to buy up a lot of spot Bitcoin that could end up in centralized custodians that are at increased risk for something like a 6102 attack uh, where these Bitcoins aren't being held by individuals. Um, it kind of hurts the decentralization of Bitcoins out there um, when they get centralized in, in BlackRock, which is, that's kind of one risk that I see um, of this whole thing that hasn't been mentioned yet. And then people, somebody said like, yeah, they're going to buy Ethereum and other things. Absolutely. Like they're absolutely going to buy Ethereum. And I think what Joe was saying highlights the difference. If Ethereum successfully moves to proof of stake, well, that's the difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum. We have BlackRock owning a ton of Ethereum and can stake it and have outsized influence over uh, the rules of the protocol. And that's kind of the whole point where you kind of move a lot of the power to large institutions and exchanges and institutions like BlackRock. So um, that kind of highlights the difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum. They will absolutely go into crypto uh, beyond Bitcoin. Um, TC, what's up? Oh, hey. Yeah, no, I'm so sorry. I, I don't want to belabor the point, but um, the, the previous speaker just read a, an excerpt 
from uh, an article, and it mentioned Energy Web and tracking the transparency of energy usage in miners. And I've seen a couple other people that quoted this section of whatever the, I don't know, press release or, or article that it's from. And um, they're, they're saying, hey, look, BlackRock thinks that Bitcoin is ESG. I read it completely the opposite. Um, I actually happen to know a tiny bit about Energy Web, and they're literally trying to build systems to um, completely track you know, energy sourcing, energy um, usage. And th this actually raises an eyebrow to me because more than just saying, hey, this miner or that miner will or will not be included in this fund, it looks to me like actual uh, mechanisms to be able to say, hey, you're not using this reporting system. It's almost like a, a tracking and reporting and monitoring system for miners. So I think it's actually a little bit sneakier and, and, and more invasive than people think. This is not just about capital exposure to investments. I think this really is what we, a lot of us have thought about BlackRock all along, that they are really pushing ESG hard in a much more manipulative way. And there is a possibility here that um, they're trying to just advance the next steps of trying to kind of monitor and track and um, kind of create a, a line in the sand, so to speak, of you're either uh, complying or not with the uh, accepted um, methodology that, uh, that we require, something like that. Yeah, thanks for sharing, man. I, I actually tend to lean with UTC. I just, I just do not trust BlackRock. <laughs> oh, these are bad dudes. They're, yeah, they're, man, really you know, know. This, this is not a. This is not a. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't want to come off the wrong way. There, there's. I think I agree with Peter too that there's inevitably, you know, more um, capital flowing into Bitcoin, and there's more people getting exposed to Bitcoin, getting familiar with Bitcoin, demystifying Bitcoin a bit. And those are really positive things long term. I just don't think anyone should drop their guard right now and say, oh, wow, look, BlackRock's not evil anymore. Like they, they, have, they have their plans. And I think they think that this Bitcoin market is small enough that they can just step in and, you know, grab it and, um, and kind of steer it the way they want. Yeah, and this is what, exactly what Kevin O'Leary wants to do. You know, this guy, Mr. Wonderful new to you know when he was new to bitcoin but then he came to fix it you know it was you know the institutions that he knew and the players that he knew and the companies that he knew are not going to get into bitcoin if it's a you know uh using energy this way and whatever and that you know he was literally talking about network bifurcation where you know a world where only like clean quote like clean clean coins would be accepted you know and things like this i mean this is how they think this is what this is what they want to do. This is how they think. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's like part of uh, Energy Web's uh, thesis, and what what they're trying to build is they actually are trying to kind of eventually like bifurcate and uh, not uh, de defungibilize the, the the Bitcoin in that way, which would obviously be bad. Yeah, I think to Peter's point. 
somebody brought up uh, the stock to flow model. Like that thing is uh, totally invalidated and was flawed from the beginning. But what you think, what you what you should Google is the supply supply and demand curve. Very simple chart. When you have an inelastic supply uh, and you have more demand, which this BlackRock news will obviously lead to more demand, institutional demand for Bitcoin, and the equilibrium price will go up and to the right. So instead of following invalidated models, just look up supply and demand curve, go back to basic economics and stuff. Uh, but I think we kind of beat this topic into the ground. <laughs> it was definitely big news. I'm glad we discussed it. A lot of great points um, were made. But um, we have a special guest. Uh, we have Stefan Levera up, and he wrote a recent piece on fractional reserve banking. So we're going to get into that. I'm going to do some uh, announcements real quick here. And then uh, I would love to pick Stefan's brain on some of his thoughts around that topic. Um, this is uh, Cafe Bitcoin. Uh, this is the place for Bitcoin morning news. Uh, it's where Bitcoiners hang out and talk about macro, about Bitcoin, about whatever we really want to talk about. Uh, we try to have a good time. Uh, we do a podcast, a recording of these spaces that you can listen to at Spotify, Apple, or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Uh, it's brought to, by, brought to you by Swamp Bitcoin. We're a Bitcoin brokerage firm and financial services company. Uh, we serve all kinds of clients internationally. Uh, we do all kinds of project or products like the Bitcoin benefit plans, as well as IRAs, as well as uh, we're starting to kick off our Swan Advisory Services. And we're getting our app out here in a couple of weeks, in a month or two, or probably. <laughs> our engineering team might get mad at me. But uh, um, so anything you need, our main product is a Bitcoin savings plan. We think people should just keep stacking sats uh, every day, every week, every month. So if you don't have that going automatically in the background, go check out Swan and get that started. Uh, we're also running a conference in November 10th and 11th this year, PacificBitcoin.com. Head there. For promo code CAFE, get 20% off your ticket. It's going to be a great time. Um, all right. So moving on from that. Uh, so, Stefan, man, what's up? Good morning. How are you doing, dude? Hey, guys. Doing well. Yeah, just, um, you know, researching, seeing what's going on in the market and um, staying up on some of the, you know, bit of research in preparation for this discussion. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, man, me too. Uh, so you wrote a piece, and I thought it was really, really interesting. And it was kind of um, it was kind of a, a rebuttal piece, from my understanding, uh, to a piece Nick Carter wrote. And Nick Carter wrote it on essentially um, on this crypto contagion, this, these lending services that we've seen blow up, whether it's Voyager, Celsius. Um, and Nick Carter was basically arguing that uh, you know leveraging credit will always be in demand by the free market. And entrepreneurs will always be there to fill this demand. And he thinks that, you know, there's sort of this creative destruction happening within the crypto credit uh, markets and that more sound operators will reemerge. But these things are inevitable and there will always be kind of these like fractional reserve banking. And you have a lot of, you have a pretty different viewpoint on this whole thing where you, you think fractional reserve banking, especially with Bitcoin, uh, from my understanding is, is maybe even just a fraud which is kind of the Rothbardian viewpoint. So first, for the people that don't understand, what is fractional reserve banking? If you don't mind just kind of explaining some of the banking. Uh, the yes, sure. sure. So, yeah, so thanks for the intro. And yeah, I think you, you summarized it correctly. And so basically my principal disagreements were just to outline that there is a different view, that we can have credit without having fractional reserve banking. Now, the question, as you said, what is fractional reserve banking? 
it generally means a situation where that bank, that lender has issued out uh, loans greater than the amount that it has in its deposits. Um, so I think maybe to put it into a simple example, as we as we did in, as I did in the article, you could think of it like: imagine we were living in this town, and there were you know gold is the money, let's say, and we've got a hundred gold ounces in the vault at that bank. Now let's say, as an example, uh, you know, let's say I'm the banker and I issue out a hundred gold tickets, and the town is using those tickets interchangeably. And crucially, they are, you know, they treat it like it's it's one for one, right? They really treat it like this is just like getting gold. Like at any point, if I give this gold ticket, uh, if somebody else, if, you know, if Neil gives this gold ticket to you, Sam, you could come and redeem that over at the bank of Stefan Levera, right? Or whatever, right? In that scenario where there's only 100 gold ounces and there's only 100 t- paper tickets out there floating around, then that's totally fine. Right, that's that's not fractional reserve. There is no inflation uh, or inflationary aspect to that. Just in this, obviously, in this little hypothetical example. Now, to change that, let's say I'm a banker and I'm deciding, oh, I'm going to issue some credit beyond the amount voluntarily saved. So in this case, I'm issuing out more than 100 tickets, and you know, we're just making it simple. So let's just say I have there's 200 tickets now, but there's actually only 100 gold ounces in my vault. Now. Of course, there's, this is a big, big topic. There's all these different arguments back and forth. But the general idea, um, the different views here are that the, let's say, the pro-fractional reserve banking side will say, well, so long as that bank can redeem at the time when people come to it, then it's fine, right? Because in their in their point of view, they see it like, oh, that money is just sitting there, quote-unquote, useless. Why don't we have credit to allow people to go out and undertake these different projects, right? So I'm just trying to summarize kind of at a very high level what like a typical view is, right? Because this is where the perhaps some of the controversy is because the, let's say, the Rothbardians, the people coming from the Austrian school of economic thought are saying, no, actually, that's that should be characterized as fraud. We should be... Uh, not we should not be permitting this kind of circumstance. We would say that is basically the same as counterfeiting. That's that it's just legally privileged counterfeiting in this case. And so that's kind of the first prong. And then the secondary prong is this idea that that is actually what causes the Austrian business cycle theory. That is actually what causes this whole malinvestment. That the practice of fractional reserve banking. What does it really enable? It enables this credit expansion beyond the amount voluntarily saved. So in that in, that, in our little town example, if, I, if I'm printing up more tickets than what there's gold in my vault and the 100 gold ounces in my vault, that is going to – those tickets are going to circulate out in the economy and obviously – the banker is going to benefit very much from that because I'm, you know, I'm printing out money and I'm charging interest. I'm, I'm making all this money. I'm loving it. But what does that do for the people in the town? Well, they, the entrepreneurs in that town believe that there are these resources available for them to use, but actually it's all we've done is created more paper tickets for money. We've created more paper claims to money, right? If we put a box around this little town and say, well, the capital resources, the capital stock of this town has not materially changed, right? Like just printing more tickets has not actually made us richer. So 
I think I'll stop there and let you sort of ask the next question, I suppose. I, but hopefully that helps explain some of the, the basic contours of this debate or argument. Yeah, so essentially these, you know, banks can create money that they don't have and put it out into the economy. And that creates this dynamic that creates all this malinvestment, this widespread credit source boom, which leads to malinvestment, which leads to large boom and bust cycles. And that's kind of, from my understanding, that's the Austrian school. Yes. Uh, yes cycle, that, right? Um, yeah. So what's the big uh, debate that I read was that, fully reserved banking doesn't emerge in the free market and that it shifts towards this fractional reserve banking naturally. So this, how like it kind of passes the market test if you look at history, but do you think that's true? Do you think that, um, you know, the free market tends towards this fractional reserve and that it's not towards this fully reserved, or do you think there's some flaws in that argument? Right. And so that's actually, yeah, part of that is mentioned in the article as well. So that was part of the dis disagreement, let's say, because the those who are in the so-called free market fraction, sorry, free, they call it, they refer to themselves as fraction, you know, free bankers, let's say. And so they are saying, well, actually, when you look at it, and so they refer to various historical examples, uh, I think Canada at one time had a similar system. Obviously, the Scotland example is a prominent one that they pr frequently talk about. But in terms of the, the full reserve camp, so there are a bunch of Austrian economists who are arguing from that perspective, and they're saying, no, actually, this was not a market test. This was more like political entrepreneurship, that if we had correctly characterized what was going on, they, those bankers who had counterfeited you know, tickets in in this example, they should have been taken to court and they should have been found guilty. You know, they should have. It should have been. You know, uh, you know. So that's uh, that's in a sense that's the argument. Um, and so I think what 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 happens with that is that basically it, it seemed like. The, the people arguing in favor of free banking are sort of arguing like a special pleading for the commercial interests of bankers and uh, and perhaps unknowing in their view, they they see it like, oh, there's no issue with this, whereas the Austrians, the full reserve Austrians are saying, no, no, you are actually driving the business cycle. That's actually why we got things like the dot-com bubble, the 0708 bubble and so on, that we that's why we're living in that world. And we're also the injustice also that Austrians talk about the Cantillon effect, right? The people who get that new money first, they are the ones who benefit. And so it creates a certain injustice in the system because certain people are able to access that new credit uh, preferentially or at cheaper rates or even to access credit at all. Yeah, that my favorite point was that you made in the article was that, um, you know, this fractional reserve banking and how it works on the free market, but you, you argue like it's basically backed by a lender of last resort. Like every time it fails, usually a central bank has to come in and bail this fractional reserve banking out, or they prevent people from withdrawing their own money. Uh, like what we kind of seen with these crypto steep uh, by lending platforms where they kind of stop withdrawals. And that's how they kind of keep going is basically through uh, government uh, intervention 
yeah, um, right. actually don't work. And and I thought that that like kind of opened my eyes a little bit because when I think when people look at society today, they're like, oh, hold on, like we've we've kind of grown a lot into this kind of vibrant world, and we've had all this progress under this fractional reserve banking. Um, but do you think it's that simple? Do you think you can attribute right. what we are where we are now just because of this fractional reserve banking, or do you think? maybe there's some other things to think about there. Yeah, exactly right. So, I mean, the way I would summarize it is more like if we were living under full reserve, we would actually be richer. Like we would be even richer than we are now. So, you know, we have to always think about it as the um, the counterfactual, right? What would the history or what would the truth or what would the state of our world be absent that? And so I think part of that is looking through history and so some of this some of this debate is not actually just on the historical facts some of it is actually on the interpretation of things it's like understanding what is the theory of things and then applying that and so i think in that sense it's why we have to understand some of the theory around this to then be able to correctly interpret what happened historically and so that's where some of this debate goes back and forth as well so some of the free bankers will say look, look how good Scotland and the Scottish free banking system was. It operated for all this time and it was great. It was, you know, from their point of view, that's what they'll argue. But then on the full reserve side, there'll be people saying, well, hang on, there was this, there was this stretch of 20 years or more where people were literally stopped from withdrawing their own coins, like what's called in-specie redemption. They were stopped from that. While at the same time, the banks were allowed to keep enforcing their like their loans onto other people, but the people couldn't take their money out. So, you know, it, it sort of raises that question. Now, of course, there are answers around this, right? So there are sort of, there is a back and forth around this, right? So if you look at some of the free banker position, they'll say, well, there's actually a reason for that because of, you know, small denominations and the need to sort of keep things working. But I think this really does come down to uh, the correct passing of the theory around what is you know what? How should an economy function? What will lead to a more sustainable pathway for economic growth and activity in society, as opposed to this very boom and bust, lumpy growth? That if we were operating in a world where you know it was full reserve banking, then we, we might arguably be operating in a more dynamic and more prosperous economy. And so I think the other interesting part, and so for anyone who's interested, I also did a recent episode with Pierre Rochard where we spoke where we spoke about some of these topics and we spoke about how Bitcoin in some sense obsoletes these things. That we actually believe because Bitcoin is so much more efficient in certain ways, it actually just obsoletes this whole question. Um, and one other point I just wanted to bring it back to what you were saying, because in fairness, we should just spell out in the case of let's say Celsius and some of these other lenders that went down, it may not necessarily be that they were fractional reserve banking per se. It could just be that there was embezzlement or there was a suit, there was a suit brought against them in terms of fraud. Um, so I think it's possible. So here's the thing. To be clear, even in a full reserve banking system, banks can still go under, right? You could be a full reserve bank who makes bad loans. You, let's say you make a bad assessment of a customer, you lend out some money to that customer, they don't return the money back, and you lose, you're out. So the point here is not, I think this crypto lender sort of blow up, it's not necessarily a, an indictment of fractional reserve banking itself. 
But I think the way, let's say, Nick Carter's article came out defending credit, I just wanted to clarify that you actually th- you can still have credit in a full reserve system. It would just operate in a different way. And so that's where this distinction of commodity credit versus circulation credit came from. So those are a few important points just to distinguish and understand in the different view of how, like, what credit should be. Yeah, and just I'm just kind of playing, uh, I guess I'm playing Nick Carter's role here. <laughs> but, you know, you know, Nick in his piece, you know, he argues that um, fully reserved banks wouldn't be able to extend credit or transform maturity. Um, you know, a world with no credit is a dismal one. Credit responsibly extended is the cornerstone of civilization. It unleashes savings and puts the money to work in productive areas of the economy. A world without credit is a sterile and stagnant one. Um, but but you're saying that it, it wouldn't really mean that in a full reserve system that credit wouldn't exist. It would just probably be less. Am I understanding that correctly? Yes. Yeah. So essentially, we would see a lot less credit uh, and I think that will play out over time, right? I think we'll we'll see this. We'll see this actually play out in Bitcoin. That ultimately, that whole Celsius and so on debacle. It wasn't that people were trading around Celsius Bitcoin as though it was equivalent with Bitcoin that we hold in our own private key, like on our own private keys in our own wallet, etc. So, I think that example doesn't really, it's not necessarily even fractional reserve banking. What would be fractional reserve banking is if those claims circulated out there in the economy, like of their own, right, in their own right. Uh, no, no, like people weren't out there trading Celsius Bitcoins. They were just, you know, trading Bitcoin. So I think that's probably a key point. But yeah, so around that broader aspect, that you, as to, just to respond to that point around the dynamic you know how dynamic will the economy be yeah it just comes back to that debate so from from the austrian full reserve perspective fractional reserve banking or uh, granting credit so to be clear granting credit beyond the amount voluntarily saved is what actually causes all this malinvestment in the first place it's just that you might have a small amount of malinvestment if there's only a little bit or like a lot of malinvestment if the government really sort of enables that so why does this happen is when the government changes the price of money, of lending, of borrowing money, because essentially the government is subsidizing and artificially pushing that interest rate lower than what it would otherwise be. And because society's preferences haven't actually changed, people are being sent the wrong signal. It would be like you're a pilot, but your instrumentation on the dashboard is giving you the wrong signal. And so think about how hard it would be to be a pilot and your instrumentation is giving you the wrong, you know, your barometer's off and you're, you know, that's basically what's happening because entrepreneurs are being sent the wrong signal because the interest rate has been manipulated. Yeah, and it's hard to like look at our current traditional financial system and not think about what you just said of how interest rates have been manipulated lower for the last, you know, basically let's just say since 2008 um, across Europe, um, obviously the Federal Reserve, and we've seen all this kind of malinvestment and this huge boom. And this, and when we have a correction, um, it, can, it can lead a lot to wealth destruction um, and large, large busts 
that are really painful for a lot of people. So I think it's really hard to look at this and not uh, hear the logic in, in the yeah. Austrian business cycle um, of what we're going through right now. Yeah. I, I, know, I know that you, I'm sorry, I know you're primarily like Austri Austrian school of thought, but can you kind of, what's the difference between the Austrian business cycle theory and then kind of the mainstream uh, business cycle theory that's kind of perpetuated by people like Paul Krugman? Can you speak on that at all? So they they tend to have views that are more like, Okay, there's a, there's a bunch of different views, but so it, the Keynesian classical idea might be this idea of animal spirits, right? Like it's just that there are, you know, just times of uh, exuberance and times of less confidence. And so a Keynesian or some of the neoclassical economists who are thinking of it in, in that way, they may assess it like, oh, there's all this unused capacity in the economy or the aggregate demand is low, so we need to stimulate to try to play a counter-cyclical role with using the tools of fiscal policy, the governmental spending and you know, borrowing and spending, or monetary policy to stimulate credit and uh, growth. But that runs counter to, as in the way the Austrians are seeing it, and crucially, think of it like this. It's, the, it's not that the damage was done on the way down from a crash. Think of it like the damage was done on the way up, per se. Because think of it like this, right? Because all of these interventions into the market for money, right? So things like suspension of redemption in specie, legal tender laws, capital gains tax laws, lender of last resort, all, all of these monetary interventions, they effectively act to change the way uh, entrepreneurs act, right? So as I was saying, that same example with the barometer giving you the wrong figure. So think of it like this. Entrepreneurs are being overly incentivized to go take even more risk than they should or invest in, let's say, even bigger or longer projects than what is actually feasible, but it's unknown to them because, you know, the barometer is giving them the wrong signal. And so what happens eventually is that you eventually reach this crunch point where people learn, oh, damn, we, we actually don't have the resources to complete this project. We've undertaken a massive project. And so... Uh, there are examples where, say, economist Mark Thornton will talk about the skyscraper curse, where he'll say, during the end of the cycle, what you'll typically see is these massive skyscraper projects being undertaken, but failing because they didn't have enough resources. And in a way, that's like a little microcosm of what's happening broader out there in the economy. So as an example, if you have a tech bubble, you, you have a lot more, let's say, okay, I'll give you another example. And this might be kind of close to home even, a bit more real, because there are engineers in other disciplines, let's say a physicist or some other kind of engineer, who ends up getting pulled into the tech sector because tech salaries are so high. Well, guess what? Why are those tech salaries so high? Oh, well, it's because of malinvestment. It's because of cheap credit. And so certain entrepreneurs who had access to credit were more easily able to go out there and bid on the market and bid away those engineers from non-software engineering engineering disciplines into software engineering because there was so much money to be made there. And so these are some of the problems of fiat money. And what we see is this kind of financialization of the economy. We see so many more people in the financial services sector than what their, I guess, quote unquote, should be absent government monetary intervention. So hopefully that's making it a bit more clear for people and people are at least understanding some of the key fault lines of this argument.
Yeah, man, that, that was helpful. It sounds like, you know, eventually these things are constrained or they kind of hit a roadblock in terms of the financialization and the malinvestment and the debt um, from resources in the real world. <laughs> like you said, if you take a bunch of engineers out and they start just having a bunch of paper pushers, eventually this comes home to roost. Um, I, I uh, This isn't just like a interview. I mean, it is an interview with Bon, and I want to get his ideas. But if anybody on stage has questions for him, just raise your hand and chime in. I didn't mean it just to be one-on-one with me and Stefan. So uh, we got Stefan here. He's a wealth of knowledge with this stuff. So feel free to ask questions if you guys have them. Um, you know, I thought, I always thought like an interesting idea is is this idea of proof of reserves. And this goes back to, Oh man, this idea of like Bitcoin banks really with like help many. Um, and his idea was like, there would be a lot of different banks that would offer different, you know, interest rates on deposits based on how uh, fractionally reserved they are. If they are, are have a, you know, only 2% um, or 2% fractionally reserved, then it's going to be a higher rate of interest to hold your bank. You're going to take that risk. Um, and they could go under more easily because they're, they, the bank is more leveraged and they're taking on more risk. And if you're more conservative, you can get a lower interest rate by holding uh, your SATs at another bank that's maybe fully reserved. And this really goes down to like the fully transparent nature and audit, auditability of Bitcoin. Um, do, you, do you see that happening? Or do you think, because from your article, it sounds like you don't think fractional reserve should ever be used or you kind of think it's a fraud. I don't want to put word in your mouth, but do you see a scenario like that playing out? Or do you think that this will all be kind of, uh, you know, equity driven investment more than credit uh, in a Bitcoin world, I guess. Yeah. I think you've summarized it pretty well. So from my point of view, I'm seeing it and Hey, look, at the end of the day, I could be proven wrong, of course. Like, but the way I'm seeing it is it's more likely that given we have Bitcoin now, it will take away some of those previous quote unquote advantages of the fiat system that it had over gold. Now, some of that was political in a sense, but part of that is just this ability to self-custody your coins, your ability to send them anywhere on earth. Whereas historically, if you wanted to just operate with gold, okay, yeah, you could hold your gold ounces or your gold bars, but if you wanted to send it anywhere quickly, well, there was a big cost to that and there was a lot of time involved for that. Bitcoin fundamentally shifts that. And so you can understand that perhaps now not endorsing this, but you can sort of understand why there was that shift from the gold standard to the fiat standard. So, of course, while we view that, while we view fiat money as a bad thing for the world, like on net compared to living on Bitcoin, I think we can sort of understand why the world went that way and that there were political forces that pushed it in that direction because they had money to gain out of it. They made they had money to make by doing this, by having a system where you as a commercial banker can get together and get some protection from the government that you would not otherwise have. I think that's the crucial point, because if you didn't otherwise have that protection from the government, for example, suspension of in-specie redemption, right, allowing you to carry on doing your business even though you were bankrupt, then that acts as a subsidy for you as the banker. So you have an incentive to go and push and lobby and get connected to make that happen so that they put in a central bank, so that they put in a lender of last resort to enable you to carry out your uh, fraudulent business in my eyes. Now, 
in now to whether that happens in a Bitcoin world, I obviously the jury is still out there, right? Like it could still happen if the world started to treat those coins, all the coins as just being interchangeable. But I believe it won't because it's just easy enough to operate natively with Bitcoin and Lightning and so on. Uh, now, you know, it. I think at, at the end of the day, would we rather have to w- work in a world where we have to try to assess each claim of Bitcoin based on who is the issuer of this claim, this paper claim to a Bitcoin versus just holding it ourselves? So I think that's fundamentally the world we're going into. Uh, but I, I, you know, I could be proven wrong. I just think it's so fascinating to think about in a world where Bitcoin's you know, widely used by everyone, how credit will actually function or how big it would be. Um, you know, at the end of your article, you kind of you talk about how if, if interest rates were so low or weren't worth it, then a lot more people would create investment using their Bitcoin instead of of credit and how that would maybe lead to more sustainable growth. Um, and when you look at like the credit expansion that we've had and all the boom and bust cycles, it seems like we've had like very fast, like it's all happened very, very quickly. Uh, but it seems also inherently fragile. Um, and it seems like it's only growing more fragile as the credit piles on and piles on. And so do you, I, I don't want to, I just like, I like thinking about this of how you could have investment using just your Bitcoin, but would that be too slow of growth? Do you think like, do you think it, it would be more sustainable, but could that be like a painful transition to that world? Oh, will it be painful to transition? Yes. Um, but I think in terms the, the question of, will it be slow growth? No, I, I, my view is more like living in a Bitcoin standard, our economy globally and the growth would just be much faster. Now, to be clear, I don't think GDP is the best metric of growth, but it is sort of a common one that economists use. But there are critiques of GDP out there because GDP only measures final output. It doesn't capture all of those stages, the intermediary stages of production uh, for which there may be more productivity happening. And so there are other Austrians, people like Mark Skousen, who've argued in favor of I believe he uses the term gross output or total output, which actually measures across all stages of production, not just GDP, which measures final stage of production or final good. Um, so, I mean, that's just an example, uh, but I see it more like we would just, people would see far less uh, financialization and they wouldn't have to do, and so this is a common point Bitcoiners make, which is that, in order to just save, you don't have to also be a financial planner, a tax accountant, and a lawyer, and a, you know, and a stock picker. You would just stack Bitcoin. You would just stack Sats, and then you might have a business idea, and you might buy things that relate to that business and put it together. But we would be operating in a in a growth deflationary world, as Joseph Salerno would put it. He's an Austrian economist, or to put it in Jeff Booth's parlance, he would he probably would call that technology deflation. We would be living in a technology deflationary world where the costs of a lot of things are coming down over time. And so because of that, it just makes it more and more easy for you to go out there and be an entrepreneur or deliver value even as an employee for somebody else because 
we just have we're, we're just getting that flywheel going in terms of capital accumulation in terms of using technology to be more productive like all of those things are going to work in a way that's much more aligned as opposed to having to do this uh, malinvestment cycle over and over and over again and also what we see is th- there's a social consequence to all of this as well so imagine you entered into this industry into whatever industry in a malinvestment thinking oh yeah this is a great career for me i'm going to build a life for myself i'm gonna, you know and then you go into debt and all of this stuff and you're kind of trapped into that industry now because you thought you were on stable ground but actually you weren't because unbeknownst to all of us that was malinvestment right and that's the same kind of analogy where you know i remember even when i graduated high school it was like a it was almost a meme right before the word meme was a thing um that uh, that you know it was a common tradition for people from my school to go become real estate agents, and so in the same kind of example, well, at the time when there's like real estate bubbles going, think of all the families and the people who went into that industry thinking, yeah, this is a really sustainable growth pathway, but actually, as you know, people in America know, there was this whole thing of house flipping. I mean, obviously that even exists today, but how much value was actually being created there? Um, when in practice, what we saw is towards the end of that cycle, there'd be all these builders screwed because they would have homes they built that couldn't sell for the price that they wanted it to. And then you would have people who had leveraged up to buy these massive homes to leave it, leave it up to go multiple homes and not able to sell and then end up underwater on their loan. And, you know, all these kinds of really horrific and very traumatic conditions for families. And you can think about the family, the cost to people's families when these industries had just kind of blown up out of nowhere, seemingly, and then just kind of crashed out of nowhere. So there is a real social cost to all the malinvestments as well. So I think that's an important point to appreciate for you know people out there who are trying to understand what's trying to make heads and tails of all this. Yeah, the wealth destruction is very real. I mean, trillions of dollars were wiped out in the global financial crisis. Yeah, I was just reading something about, you know, housing inventory and, and builders right now uh, dealing with similar issues. We're kind of starting to see some weakness in the housing market. Not saying that we're going to have another crash like global financial crisis, but um, kind of a similar thing going on. But now it seems like there's bubbles everywhere. Um, from these low interest rates that have been manipulated downwards uh, by these central banks manipulating the price of money. I love the, thinking about the social dynamics of having like a measuring stick that doesn't change on you all the time and how people can think more long-term and have more long-term uh, investments um, and how what would that do in terms of stable growth as well as just building great infrastructure projects and things that could really benefit society. And and that's kind of the kind of building that I, I think about in a Bitcoin full reserve system, I guess, um, which doesn't seem to be possible when you have these boom and bust cycles that wipe out wealth every 10 years or so, eight to 10 years in, in the fractional reserve system that we have today. Um, and it's not just that. I, I want to add something else there. It's that when economies start to go like this, the voters, there's a political aspect to it as well. So I don't know in other countries, but I know even in the scene back in Australia, it seems like there's a there's a big political fight going on over whether the government should 
try to keep keep the party going. And so, uh, you know, for example, in Australia, I saw the federal, uh, basically the Reserve Bank of Australia, the equivalent, um, was sort of saying, oh, we won't raise the interest rates. And then maybe two years later, the interest rates did go up. And so there's all these people who are highly levered. Uh, and so now they are, uh, a lot of them are getting into trouble with mortgage repayments and things like this. So it really causes all these social uh, ramifications for people um, where obviously in a Bitcoin world, we would see, I believe, a little bit more stability. But to, to be just to be clear, it's not going to be perfect. It, it'll never be perfectly stable because there will always be reasons why people might have a higher demand to hold money or a, a lower demand to hold money. Um, and that in turn can influence the value of Bitcoin. And or the, or in that hyper-Bitcoinized world, it would influence the purchasing power of your Bitcoin. So, you know, I think this is one of those things where it's almost like a false sense of security, right? Governments tell people, oh, we don't, you know, let us control the money and we'll keep it stable for you. But the reality is they can't. Nobody can make it stable. Monetary stability is just an illusion. And so there is no neutral, there is no you know, way to actually keep it stable, despite that being often uh, a central banker mandate is around, okay, stable, you know, stable uh, pricing. Yeah, and even like suppressing volatility, I, I picture it like holding a beach ball underwater. Like you could do that, but then it actually leads to more volatility. <laughs> yeah, down the road. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, for sure. Um, kind of switching gears a little bit here. I know that you've been kind of looking into um, different ways we measure, different monetary measures. So, and how they kind of can confuse people. And I'm talking about all these different definitions of M1 versus M2 versus M3. And a lot of people like incorrectly say that like 80% of dollars were created um, over the last couple of years when really it's like 40 because they just, they're looking at the M1 and really the, the Fed changed the definition of the M1 <laughs> in 2020. Um, yeah. To include certain, I think it was uh, deposits or something like that. Or savings account. I forgot which what, what exactly they changed with the definition, but um, maybe you could kind of clear that up a little bit about why there's so much confusion about even how to define, um, you know, what is money? What's what's what monetary measures are you actually measuring? Yeah, yeah, it's very confusing, and uh, uh, I certainly I don't consider myself an expert in this area, but it's just an area I was researching a little bit, obviously with this article I was writing as well in relation to fractional reserve banking. So the way to think about this is there's base money and then there it's meant to and then each of those uh, progressive uh, numbers going above that so m0 m1 m2 m3 you're going further and further away in terms of easy access or liquidity or uh, some people even frame it like in terms of moneyness so m0 is meant to be the narrowest definition it's meant to be actual physical items now there are some other classifications where they say M0 is the same as the monetary base. So monetary base is paper currency and coins as well as commercial bank deposits at the Federal Reserve. Now, uh, so uh, there, there's lots of other aspects to that. But then once we go from M0 or mon and monetary base to M1, we have to, it's kind of confusing because we have to subtract out uh, commercial bank reserves, but then add in, say, US paper currency and coins held by the public and demand deposits and checkable deposits. 
Now, to your point, Sam, as you said, there was a reclassification in, um, I think, late 2020. Uh, and the reason given for that was they had changed the conditions around account types where I think there was previously this account type where you could make up to six withdrawals per month. Uh, and because of that, they considered it more like an M1. It's like a little bit further away from M, uh, sorry, M2 uh, rather than M1. But then that got reclassified into M1. So that kind of, you know, made it look, um, now I guess the, let's say the conspiracist might be like, oh, see, they were trying to hide the amount of money created and stuff. I, look, I don't know. There could honestly be a, that could just be a genuine, you know, they moved it like it happened that way. Uh, and they weren't necessarily trying to hide, but, you know, I can I can understand sort of in, in that in both cases there. Then it, when you go from M1 to M2, now we're talking about savings account balances and things like money market account balances, uh, retail money market mutual funds, um, and smaller time deposits like banks certificates of deposit. Uh, and then, yeah, so I think the other interesting aspect with all of these monetary metrics and things like this is there is this entire whole euro dollar system, right? So people uh, talk about this. You can, basically, it's it's called euro dollars, but it really means offshore dollars. And so that refers to these bankers outside of the US who are doing, you know, loans, and uh, it can also be known as shadow banking. So that's like another area um, where you know people argue, okay, well, actually the Federal Reserve is only dealing with a small amount of uh, monetary base and so on compared to what's going on out there in the broader world. So it, it's a very confusing world in a way because it's hard to get your arms around it and really understand exactly what's going on with all, with all of this. Now, there are, I guess, to the in the same way that we, you know, the world went from the gold standard to the fiat standard, I guess you could sort of argue, yes, there are political reasons why or certain uh, governmental or economic reasons why uh, these things exist, but you know what? Uh, you know, moving to a Bitcoin world, it'll be a lot simpler because it will just be all monetary based. It'll just be Bitcoin. Okay, maybe there'll be some credit, but for the most part, I think that's the key uh, insight. I would say. Um, now, I think there was one other point I wanted to make. I'm just trying to remember. Um, let me just see. Ah, uh, yes. So this is the other thing. So it's talking about um, like the concept of money substitutes. So I think it's important to understand. I think this is where some of that debate is because there's a bit of a debate about this idea of moneyness per se. So this idea that how much is something performing a role as money? So people can give an example here where let's say a very high net worth person or large companies will hold a lot of treasury bills. Treasury, you know, they'll hold a lot of bonds because they can't hold that in a bank. And so is that money for them? Like they just hold T bonds, T bills, and so it's a it's the same kind of idea where perhaps if we're being strict about what money is, that's when we're just talking, you know, more like base money or just sort of M zero, uh, as opposed to being looser about what is considered moneyness. Or and so some people talk about that in liquidity terms, but that's also distinct. So liquidity is distinct from moneyness. Um, that how uh, you know yeah how like how much is it really traded around as though it is uh, you know, put it this way for something to be a money substitute it's not enough just to be liquid right so uh, if you have shares in a 
if you have shares in Apple, you know, that's very, very liquid, but, you know, I, I don't think people would call that money, right? That would not appear in any of the monetary aggregates or the monetary, you know, M0, M1, et cetera. So um, a little bit confusing, but hopefully some of that has um, helped clarify, uh, at least from an Austrian perspective, what's money and what's what are we counting here? Man, that is that's so confusing. I, I I just think it's crazy that they have to have like three different definitions of money, basically, and that it's so hard for them to even decide what should be considered money in this really convoluted system that has developed over the last several decades. It's just it's really crazy to me. And then it's an ever shifting definition uh, for each one. Um, but just to, I want to make a clarification. Uh, is the euro dollar is that included in any of the definitions? No, or is no, that just so outside of all? That's, that's considered outside. Yeah, that's considered outside of M one, M two, M three. Um, so, oh, actually, um, it might be part of M three. I've got to check that. Actually, I think it's outside of M three, but it's definitely not part of M zero, M one, or M two. So it's seen as because part of the reason it's called that is it's outside, so called. It's outside the purview of the Federal Reserve, and it's outside the purview of the U.S authorities in that sense so that's i guess that's part of why the name came up as euro dollars really it means offshore dollars but the other thing is depending on who you listen to there'll be different arguments there around how much control or how much power the federal reserve have so for example if you listen to jeff snyder uh or ansel lindner they'll have a their view is more like the federal reserve doesn't have that much control over the money supply because actually there's all this stuff happening out there in the euro dollar system that just dwarfs what's happening in the domestic US market. So, uh, and I think they have a point, right? There is a point there with that. Um, I think Austrians do recognize that, um, but maybe you could argue, should they recognize that a bit more and do more research or do more writing on that in terms of how to assess that? Uh, That's probably the debatable point. Yeah, man. I mean, it's, it's, it seems to me like it would make sense that the euro dollar system is probably this behemoth, um, considering it's not just like in Europe, like you said, it's, it's, it's all the rest yeah. of the world. That's yeah. issuing I'll give you, actually, that, one other point I just want to make here, just quickly, you could also argue in some sense, like part of the reason is, is because it's hard to get your arms around that. It's hard to actually understand what is out there because some of this is just private arrangements between banks. And an interesting example from our Bitcoin world is if you look at an exchange like BitMEX, right? Historically and even today, as I understand, now I don't know. Now I think they're coming out with Spot, and I'm not sure exactly whether you know, people can do fiat in or out. But at least when BitMEX started, they were just literally doing Bit Bitcoin in and Bitcoin out only, and then they were representing the USD as a synthetic. And so you could even argue, in some sense, like is that like a Euro dollar? Were they doing like this kind of Bitcoin? euro dollar system so it's it's a fascinating world out there in that sense yeah it's interesting to think about yeah bitmex just brought me back i just had some memories going on there back in the day but um and like stable coins like how are privately issued stable coins going to fit into all this and it's kind of a, a question that i don't know the answer to but yeah i think i i would say probably in that case that Hmm. I would say in that case, it relates to what are their reserves, right? So 
say Tether had a lot of commercial paper, but now they are going to be doing moving to a, a T bill approach as well. So I would say it's reflected by that. But they are, in a sense, this kind of massive private bank. So yeah, really interesting to think about and assess. And I think that'll be interesting to see what happens with the growth of that. Obviously, we're Bitcoiners, we would rather promote Bitcoin first and foremost. But from my point of view, this is like just recognizing or understanding that there are people out there who want that product. Uh, of course, I'd rather just get them straight to Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm actually, I wrote a piece that was um, was about emerging market economies and how yeah, like I agree. I think that Bitcoin's a long-term hold that they should do to protect their uh, wealth. But also, there's demand for stable coins, and it's because it's you know the, the volatility of Bitcoin at this stage in its adoption. It they want something a little more stable to pay for monthly bills, and it just doesn't really make sense to hold Bitcoin for some things. Um, but I make a point in the piece that a big difference between Bitcoin and these stable coins is the censorship resistance and, and Caesar resistance. And we saw uh, USDC uh, just the other day blacklist uh, millions of dollars worth of um, USDC. And it, was a, it really highlighted what I was saying there, how you still have a centrally issued uh, stable coin and they can be tapped on the shoulder by a regulator or government and just cut access off to these stable coins. And so... I just think it's a really important distinction to make. Although there's demand for it, there's still this risk of, of censorship. And censorship. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah that's an important so. point to mention. Um, but I think, so again, not speaking of what I want to happen, but speaking of what I believe is likely, I think a lot of people will want them anyway, even even with that censorship risk. risk. Um, of course, we, we would rather they go straight for Bitcoin, but I think there'll be a lot of people out there who they're probably not listeners of this spaces, but they're just people out there in the world, especially in people in uh, developing countries where from, maybe from their point of view, they would rather take that risk of getting centrally censored by, let's say, Circle or Tether than the risk of not being able to access their coins with their local bank anyway. So I think this is going to be a really um, big growth angle, and we're going to see governments come out and regulate that also. So we may see uh, more KYC regulation and we may even see more banking style regulation or stable coins may eventually be regulated more like money market funds. So we'll see uh, what happens with all, with all that too. What's your thoughts real quick? We only have five minutes left, but what's your thoughts on uh, some of these developments like Taro and and I think I can't remember. There's another one that just came out where it's kind of like allowing. Oh, Galoy. Um, yeah, stable sets. Yeah. So I did an interview actually with Nicholas Berti a little while back when he was still developing that. Um, so yeah, there's a few different approaches, right? So the stable sets approach, you can think of it like obviously it's more centralized. There is still trust. Obviously, it's custodial, but the provider of that is basically running like a bot where they are. I think in essence they're like going one x short on an exchange and then trying to give a stable fiat value for the users of that wallet. So in this example, Bitcoin Beach Wallet, as part of Galois stack, could offer this functionality for the users. And so that's where this StableSats, so the site for that is StableSats.com. Uh, and so I did an interview with Nicholas about talking about some of those different concepts. Now, that's one idea. 
but it, I think even in that idea, it wouldn't necessarily be interchangeable. Whereas, let's say, the stable coins like Tether and so on, you can spend them anywhere out and about to other Tether users or to other, let's say you're using Circle or whatever the other stable coins are. Um, but to what you were saying as well, so there's some different approaches here. So there's Taro, um, which is the Lightning Labs approach. And then there is also Omnibolt, which is another one that's from uh, in being invested in by Bitfinex. So John Carvalho and like Synonym, they're, they're kind of working with that idea, the Omnibolt. And separately to that, there's also RGB, which was, uh, let's call it like a predecessor of Taro. So that's also being invested in by Bitfinex and has, you know, people like Giacomo Zucco and people like that who were working on it in years gone by. So there's all these competing approaches out there on how to do them. I think essentially what we're going to see is just in the same way that, you know, these stable coins like Tether, they operate on, say, liquid blockchain, but they're also on all these other altcoin chains. And in the same way, I think that just they will probably just put it on all of them and then just let the market decide. <laughs> so I think it will be interesting to see if, if people you know, adopt the Taro or Omnibolt style approaches, because then it may have another reason for people to install a Bitcoin wallet or a Lightning wallet. And so then that's another reason, another way to start building the Bitcoin flywheel uh, because if they've got it all in one wallet, whether let's say they can flip between their stablecoin or the stable sats style, they can flip between their fiat and then flip to Bitcoin, then it might help some of them ease the process in. So maybe there's a little bit of a win there in terms of br helping bridge the fiat-minded people over into our Bitcoin world. So uh, that's how I'm seeing that. Yeah, just kind of help with the accessibility and, and give people what they want, really, but then have like an easy transition to Bitcoin right there. I, I think that's that's really cool, especially for but, And I mean, to be clear, we should, we should just make sure, just for any listeners, they should understand with all of these things, there's a big difference between custodial, right? Like if you are just, you are basically custodial, you could get seized, you could get censored if you're using these stable coins. Whereas obviously if you hold Bitcoin and you hold the private keys, that's, that's a whole world of difference. It's so much better. So it's important for people to just appreciate that difference. other uh, worse yeah, currencies, but uh, it still has that risk, right? And that curve, that slope forward downwards, uh, that slope downwards is getting steeper uh, with this rate of inflation and debasement. Uh, well, well, Stefan, uh, thanks for sharing your knowledge, man. I really appreciate you coming up here. Uh, I thought it was an interesting conversation. Uh, Stefan is a podcast, and I think he, I love listening to it because he really gets into uh, the nitty gritty and talks to entrepreneurs in Bitcoin about new products that they're building, um, some of the more technical aspects. And um, so if you haven't checked out Stefan's podcast, uh, go check it out. I think it's a great. Um, do you have any closing comments, Stefan, or anything you want to uh, tell the audience? I would say just do what you can to help encourage your friends and family, try and guide them, get them stacking. That's the important thing is get them stacking non-custodially where you can, you know, so just get them started however you can and, I think that's the important thing um, because you've just got to look at, you've got to zoom out and look at the long view here. Governments are in a lot of debt. They have to print. That's, or at least that's the likely outcome, right? They could default or they could print. They're more likely to print. So just keep that in mind. And of course, uh, everyone can find me and listen to the show at stefanlibera.com. Um, but yeah, Sam, thanks for hosting me. Enjoy chatting. 
Thank you, brother. All right, everybody. Well, uh, appreciate everyone who listened in. Uh, this is Cafe Bitcoin. This is the place for morning news. Uh, prefer to hang out every morning from 10 to 12 Eastern time. Come hang out. Do a podcast. If you missed this, go check it out. It's about by Apple. Um, we had a good conversation today about BlackRock, um, as well as fractional reserve banking. Uh, we talked about the PPI print in the beginning. Uh, I want to thank uh, my own company, I guess, Swan, Swan Bitcoin, for uh, running this show. Uh, check out swan.com for setting up a Bitcoin savings plans, as well as all these other products that we offer for high net worth individuals, businesses, as well as international clients. want to thank the crew, Aunt Jane, Touch for Life, producer Jacob. Um, Alex is typically the host here, but he's uh, on a little vacay, so he'll be back uh, next week if you guys are missing him. I was your substitute host, Sam Callahan. Uh, thanks for everyone who talks. Appreciate what you do. Um, go touch some grass. Go call your mom today. Uh, you know, get off the charts, uh, but keep stacking those stats. Take self-custody. Keep them secret. Keep them safe. And um, I love you guys. Go have a great day today. Appreciate you all. Peace.